Okay, good morning, everybody. So glad that you are um, joining us this morning, even though not physically with us in this room, but we are just blessed um, to have you a part of our service this morning. Um, This morning, we're continuing our series in Acts, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. If you want to turn there, um, you can do so. But before we delve into scripture, I want to ask you a question. And that question is, when you hear the word evangelism, what comes to mind? Is there an experience associated with it, a type of an emotion? Maybe for some of you, it was a great positive experience. And maybe for others, it wasn't that great of an experience. Well, simply put, evangelism means communicating the good news of the gospel. That's it. Easier said than done, right? Well, sharing one's faith is a core practice in most faiths. And for Christians, it's viewed as a mandate by Jesus himself. We read about it in the Great Commission, to go. Well, maybe you grew up in a culture where you used something called cubes. Um, those little cubes that like you open up and you share the gospel, they're actually really hard to use as you are talking. A lot of the times you're like fumbling and flipping and it just doesn't work a lot of the times. But maybe, maybe that's how you got to know Christ was through one of those cubes. Or maybe you made one of the bracelets where you would take a different colored um, bead and put it on and you would share the gospel one bead at a time and then at the end you would say the prayer and be saved. Well, in college, I was a part of Navigators, and we utilized this tool, where you had the individual on one side and God on the other side, and you walked them through Romans 6, 23, and you created across a bridge from where you are to where God is. Or perhaps you grew up with the heaven's gates and hell's flames method, right? Where we're going to show you that if you die, this is what Satan is going to do to you. Now say the Satan's prayer and you're saved. Yes, another soul saved. Okay, maybe that wasn't the greatest method to scare people into becoming a Christian, but maybe that was your experience. I don't know. And I'm sure that there are a lot more methods out there And hear me when I say those methods aren't necessarily wrong in sharing the gospel. We just have to be careful in how we use those methods. And this morning, I want to share a model that Paul utilizes in Acts when he's in Athens, and why I think for the culture that we're currently living in is a model that we need to lean into if we're we're not already doing that. And so in our passage, I want us to draw some evangelistic ideas on how to reach unchurched individuals and how to engage them where they are at and to present the gospel to them in a way they will understand. And so two questions I want to ask are, the first is, how do we engage in a secular society? How do we do that? Secondly, how do we engage intellectual people who are biblically illiterate? 
right? There are a lot of really smart people out there, and there's a lot of information right at our fingertips, but maybe they don't know scripture very well. So keep those two questions in mind as we walk through this chapter. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, to see where Paul is and how he responds to the situation that he is in. And this is what we read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And the first thing here that I want to address is, what did Paul see and how did he respond? Well, Paul had been in Berea and agitators had run him out and into Athens. The them that he mentions is Silas and Timothy. He had been with them and had been on a journey, one of the missionary journeys with them, and he had gotten separated from them. Athens wasn't a planned missionary church and missionary trip, and yet Paul took that opportunity while he was in Athens to share the gospel. Because Paul wasn't um, a missionary on a mission trip, he's always a missionary. As Christians, we have that mandate on our life, right, to go, and so every day, everywhere, we too are missions, missionaries. Now, while Paul was waiting at Athens, he did what any other tourist would do. He walked around Athens, and he did some sightseeing. Now, I haven't had the pleasure of visiting Athens, but based off of pictures and from different accounts, I know that it is a really beautiful city. You have great temples of the Acropolis here. Um, You have the Parthenon, right? We have all of these really beautiful architecture and these temples. And when you walk around, you should be drawn to that beauty. But as Paul is walking around the city, he saw the gods of Athens. He saw the idols that were being worshipped. One ancient writer tells us that at this time there were 30,000 gods in Athens and that it was easier to find a god than a person. That just blows my mind that there are more gods than humans at this time. I think that says something about this city. Instead of seeing the beauty that Athens was, Paul sees Athens being smothered by all these idols. It truly was a city under these idols. And despite all the beauty Paul saw in Athens, it didn't honor God. And therefore, it didn't impress him. Paul views the city in a different way than a tourist does because he looked at this city as Christianly. When we become Christians, we gain a different perspective and we see the world in a different way because we now have a Christian worldview. And that's really important for us to remember. We may enjoy things that other people enjoy, but we're not going to see them or experience them the same way because we have a different worldview. 
We see the world in light of God's revelation. We see it in view of what he has revealed about himself, about his son, and about the story of the Bible. We see the world in light of creation, fall, redemption, new creation, and we can't go around and not see things and feel a certain way. We don't just live in this life and see things as a non-Christian does. It doesn't work that way. We have a new lens on because we are Christians, right? We worship the God of revelation, not the God of our imagination. And because he has revealed himself to us, it affects everything we do and everything we say. And so the question to ask of us then is this. Do you see the idolatry that surrounds us today? Right? Though we literally don't see cities immersed in idols and statues, there's still plenty around us. Our idols are just going to look different. To put it simply, an idol is, indicates the loss of consciousness of God's presence. Furthermore, idolatry is seeking security and meaning in someone or something other than God. We know there are idols around us. We live in a fallen and broken world. And I'm sure that we can all name one of those idols in our lives, in our culture. Well, how does Paul react when he sees all of this? Scripture says that he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. And another translation... It says that Paul's spirit was deeply provoked. In Greek, deeply can be translated as his spirit within, which refers to his mind and his body. Everything in him was just distressed and distraught by what he saw, as it should be, right? He sees all these idols and he is distressed. And like the prophet Jeremiah... Does God's word burn so deeply within us that we can't keep silent when we see others worshiping something other than God? Is our response and our reaction the same as Paul's? If we look to the Old Testament, we see this in the story of the golden calf. When Moses has gone up to get the Ten Commandments, what are the Israelites doing? They're making an idol of a golden calf. I just laugh at that, like, seriously, Israelites? Like, again, you're going to do this? God says to Moses that the people have become corrupt. God was deeply distressed that his people made that idol, which explicitly goes against the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. God and God alone should be worshipped. Not something or someone else. Paul has this certain anger for what he sees in Athens. He has a zeal for God's glory because he wants Jesus to be worshipped in Athens, not some great gods, not some statue. Do we also desire for Jesus to be worshipped in our culture today? Do our actions reflect this? Do our lives reflect this? 
where God is our one true king, not these other things that are pulling us away for what it is that he wants for us. This, because this zeal, this anger that Paul displays, he's showing it because he loves them. Just like how God was provoked to anger from the Israelites' behavior, he loves them because he has chosen them. He has chosen us. We have that call, we have that mandate on our life to go and to make disciples. Paul has a broken-hearted compassion for people. A kind of compassion that is played out in the way he warmly and respectively engages with the Athenians. Did you hear me? That's important as we move forward. He warmly and respectively engages with the Athenians. Even though he was distressed, even though he was provoked, his reaction and his behavior were one of wisdom and one of respect. Something I would even say that we would do wise to learn is to respond with wisdom and respect. Paul doesn't take a sledgehammer to the Athenians. He doesn't tear them down. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't call them out in an unloving manner or in hatred. He instead approaches them in grace, in patience, and love. And that right there is our issue today. It comes down to a heart issue. How do we approach those who are unbelievers? So many people have been hurt by the church. So many people have been hurt by other things, by the way that we engage and the way we react. How are we going to instead approach others in grace and patience and in love? Those who are different than us. Are we going to be like Paul? Or are we going to instantly attack because we are correct and our ideas are the right way? As believers, we have to have a heart check. We have to be like Paul, not just in his theology, but we have to emulate his heart. He's zealous for God's glory, for him and him alone to be praised and worshipped. He's compassionate for people, which causes him to go somewhere and to say something about what he has seen in Athens. He can't stay silent, and neither can we. Where then does Paul go and do with this feeling with what he saw? What does he do? Well, let's keep reading in verse 17. This is what scripture says. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they all mean. 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I chuckle at that last statement because how many of us just spend our time doing nothing and talking about and just listening to the latest ideas and we don't do anything about it? We just complain about it or we gossip about it. Paul's saying, hey, we got to do something. And so in these verses, we see that Paul goes to three, well, actually, two and a half places. First, he goes to the synagogue, and he reasons with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. This is a common setting for Paul, and one that we often see him in, because when he's in the synagogue, he'll start with the Old Testament history and their background to share the gospel. It's in their context. He contextualizes the gospel for them. The other place Paul goes, and where I want to focus on, is after he reasons in the synagogue, he is taken to the marketplace, Areopagus. And with both of these places, Paul presents what I want to suggest as a marketplace ministry. And what I mean by this is that Paul engages with each party in their own context. He meets them where they're at and contextualizes the gospel in a way that they will understand, in a way that they can know about Christ. A couple of things about the Aragopagus. It was the center of Athens. It was the original site where the town council met. It was an elevated, open-air marketplace. It's where the Council of Philosophers met. It's where people gathered to get the latest news, to shop, to visit. It's kind of like our newspapers, our social media platforms today. Notice in verse 18, there's two different philosophical schools that were with Paul, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And this is a picture of the marketplace of Areopagus. And these two schools that are with Paul, they have a very different understanding of the world. N.T. Wright says this, the Epicureans held that the world and the gods were a long way away from one another, with little or no communication. The result was that one should get on with life as best as one could, discovering how to gain maximum pleasure from a quiet, sedate existence. The Stoics believed that divinity lay within the present world and within each human being, so that this divine force could be discovered and harnessed. Virtue consisted in getting in touch with and living according to this inner divine rationality. Okay, there's a lot there. Ultimately, what we want to understand is that these skeptics, they don't understand because their worldview is very different than Paul. Remember, Paul has a Christian worldview. These skeptics have different worldviews. And these skeptics think that Paul is just babbling, that he's just picking up an idea here and an idea there, and that he doesn't make any sense. And so they bring him to the marketplace to share. And when Paul gets to the marketplace, this is, this is important, he doesn't attack those in his presence Right? He doesn't start a riot. He starts a conversation with them. Is that our reaction? Do we start riots or do we start conversations? 
And here in this setting, Paul starts with a general reference to religion, which is a different approach than when he is addressing the leaders within the synagogue. Paul uses some of the culture he saw as he was sightseeing. He mentions that he saw the statue of the unknown God, and it is here, using their culture, that he lays the foundation to reach them and teach them the gospel. He contextualizes it for them. Paul engages them where they are at. It's the marketplace ministry. Especially in the current day and age that we are living in. We can't leave evangelism to those who are pastors, leaders, trained clergy. Right? As I mentioned earlier, as Christians, sharing our faith is viewed as a mandate by Jesus himself. We all have a call on our lives to go. And this is stated in the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It doesn't say one group go. It says, therefore, go and make disciples. It's a call in our life to do that. We have to engage them. Christianity, it's not at the center of our culture anymore. Barna put out a study last year, and it showed that just one in four Americans are practicing Christians. Just one in four. So then what do we do in this secularized world? We need an everyday church with an everyday mission. It's a part of who we are here at CCC, right? Every day, everywhere, just like we've been talking about in the book of Acts, the church, it's not a building. It's a people. We represent the church. We, with the Holy Spirit, are empowered to go out and to share the good news. Just like Paul, we are missionaries every day, not just on a mission trip we got to have that mindset. And like Paul, we have to engage people with humility, with courage, and with boldness. To be full of grace, to be full of patience, and to be full of love. And as a culture, we need to learn conversation skills, to get off of our phones, to get off of our social media platforms, and engage with the scriptures. Stop elevating our own ideas and instead elevate the one true king and share the good news about him. Because Christ and Christ alone deserves all the praise and all the glory. How then... Does Paul take the gospel and contextualize it for the audience and the location that he is in? Well, we read about this, and we see that this last point is contextualizing the gospel, and we read this, starting in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "'People of Athens, I see that in everywhere you are very religious.'" For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. 
and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Right? Paul doesn't preach a sermon. He instead gives an informal address to those in the marketplace. He meets them where they're at. Marketplace ministry. He breaks the gospel down and paints a beautiful picture of the gospel. All the while, he keeps the culture and the skeptics in mind as he shares. And this brief intro is saying, hey, let me tell you about the God who is knowable. Let me share with you about this unknown God because he wants to be known. For God wants to be known, and that's through the Holy Spirit within us. How can we make him known in our lives? Well, Paul continues on in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul starts with creation. I know a lot of the times evangelism models, they start with the doctrine of sin and how you have messed up and how you have failed. I'm not saying that's wrong, but maybe, maybe we should start with this model and this concept that Paul shares. Because he starts with the beginning. He, he starts with God created everything in the world. And when I think of this, I think of Toy Story. Right? Andy has all of these toys, and on the bottom of their feet, he writes his name on the bottom of them and says, Andy. He has put a stamp on them. Just like that, God has put a stamp on us. We are his creation. We are made in his image. God is bigger than any temple built by men's hands, and he cannot be represented by anything we could make. God, uh, Paul continues, and he says in verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is a really sobering statement that Paul makes. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. We need him. And yet he chooses to use us because he loves us. Right? This statement is counterculture to Paul's audience. They would go to the different gods and like, okay, I'm going to talk to this god and ask for this, and then this god for this, and then this god for this. It's a lot to keep up with. Here, Paul is saying God is the sustainer of life. God is the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. It's not anything else. It's not anyone else. It's God and God alone. God is knowable. We read in 26. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed ones in history and the boundaries of their lands. Paul affirms the oneness of all people in their creation by one God and their descent from a common ancestor. Because from one man came all nations. We should celebrate the diversity that God has created because diversity is God's idea. We should marvel at the diversity that are around us. 
What a glorious thing it is. And then finally, finally Paul gets into the doctrine of sin. And he says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, after he has shared all of these great characteristics about who God is and the sustainer of our life, now he shares about sin. We're to seek God, but it's hard to see him because we live in a broken and in a fallen world. And because of the fall and what Adam and Eve did in the garden, we're now groping and feeling around lost in this darkness, in this broken world. We need God's grace to open up our eyes to be revealed to his truths. And the only way we can see is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that we can see and be revealed of these truths. God is the father of humanity. Verse 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul again brings in the culture and he quotes one of the creation poets of Athens, He's contextualizing the gospel in a way for them to understand and to connect and to engage. We are made in God's image. Therefore, it's foolish for us to worship anything else other than God. Paul told them of our responsibility to God because we are his offspring. And because we are his offspring, we are responsible to have right ideas about God. And therefore, we have to reject the idea that gold, silver, stone, or anything else could represent God. Paul finally wraps it up in this statement. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Redemption is found in Christ and Christ alone. God is more interested in repentance than in judgment. And so in these verses, we see this nice package that Paul presents the gospel to the Athenians. Paul went from knowing who God is, our creator, to who we are, his offspring, to our responsibility before him to understand and to worship him in truth, and to our accountability if we dishonor him, which is, our ju- which is judgment. He contextualized the gospel in a way that they would understand. So then what does this mean for us today? What is our move? Well, people may fabricate gods to serve their own needs, whether that's individual or social rather than serving God and finding the self and losing themselves. How do we help others discover their identity in Christ? To approach them with grace, to approach them in patience and love, 
like Paul did in Athens. Three things. The first is consistency. We must love people for who they are. People. Full of diversity, full of goodness. To have a hunger and desire like Paul to be on mission every day, everywhere. Secondly, comprehensiveness. We can't assume everyone knows everything. We have to take a cue from Paul and maybe don't start with the typical turn and burn sin approach, but rather start with creation that they are made in God's image and walk alongside them, listen to them, do life with them. Simplicity, yet comprehensive in a way you approach the gospel. Do you know the gospel well enough to share that? Thirdly, contextualization. Paul observes and notices the culture around him. You have to find a point of connection with those with whom you are talking with and which culture that you are in. Right? I'm going to engage my high schoolers differently than I'm going to engage those like my grandparents. I'm not going to share with them the same things. I might share the same message, but I'm going to do it in a different manner so that they can both receive the same message just with contextualization. You have to be aware of who you are talking to and do it with wisdom and engage with them and engage with the scriptures. And so going back to the question I asked at the beginning, how do we engage in a secular society? We do it in love, we do it in grace, we walk alongside others. How do we engage intellectual people who are biblically illiterate? We do it with grace, we do it with patience and courage. We meet them and we engage individuals where they are at. Every day, everywhere we go, we're on mission for him. I want to end with this. Why are we afraid to approach non-Christians? Others who are different from us. Some fear that if they affirm the good in other faiths, they will deny the supremacy of Christ. When we engage with others, we must keep three disciplines in mind. We must love under the scriptures, we need the discipline of community, and we must live under the discipline of witness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being creator, sustainer, of life. God, may we seek you and you alone. May we help others to contextualize the gospel and present it to them in a way that they can understand. May you go before us and may you surround us with your love. Amen.